This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. In August of 1898, Olaf Oman was clearing a newly acquired piece of land outside the rural settlement of Kensington, Minnesota. The day was nearly over, the sun was setting, and the 44-year-old Swedish-born farmer was about to wrap up his work when he found something strange tangled in the roots of a poplar tree. It was a long, heavy slab of stone engraved with cryptic symbols Omen didn't recognize. With help from his 10-year-old son Edward and their neighbor Nils Flotten, Omen lugged the slab up to his house to investigate further. Edward thought the markings might be some sort of Native American language. Omen wasn't so sure. After spending the next few days cleaning the markings with a nail to make them clearer, Omen showed the stone to his friend J.P. Hedberg, who sent a transcription of the symbols to the editor of Svenska Amerikanska Posten, a Minneapolis Swedish-language newspaper. Shockingly, the editor recognized some of the symbols as Viking runes from around the turn of the first millennium CE, meaning Omen had either stumbled on evidence of Vikings' presence in the American Midwest, or he had found an extremely convincing hoax. In life, there's so much we don't know, but in this podcast, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries on the Parcast Network. I'm your host, Richard. And I'm your host, Molly. At Parcast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. You can listen to previous episodes of Unexplained Mysteries, as well as all of Parcast's other shows wherever you listen to podcasts. This is our first episode on the Kensington Runestone, 
a controversial artifact that chronicles a 14th century Scandinavian expedition to the American Midwest. If the stone is authentic, it would mean that Vikings arrived in the New World over 100 years before Christopher Columbus. This week, we'll discuss the history of the runestone's discovery, the possible Viking voyage it may have chronicled, and the decades-long battle between believers and skeptics over the stone's authenticity. Next week, we'll dive into the major theories that may explain what the stone is, where it came from, and who carved it. After he received Hedberg's transcription of the runes, the editor of the Svenska Amerikanska Posten forwarded them to O.J. Breda, a Norwegian-born professor of Scandinavian languages at the University of Minnesota. Breda published a translation in the student newspaper, which read as follows. Eight Swedes and 22 Norwegians on an exploration journey from Vinland westward. We had our camp by two rocky islets one day's journey north of this stone. We were out fishing one day. When we came home, we found ten men red with blood and dead. AVM save us from evil. We have ten by the sea to look after our ships. Fourteen days journey from the island. Year 1362. Breda's article saw widespread circulation after it was picked up by the Chicago Daily Tribune. Thousands of Tribune readers were presented with the question of whether it was really possible that Vikings had been the ones who discovered the New World. The idea wasn't totally new. Viking texts from the early Middle Ages detailed voyages by Leif Erikson to Vinland, which we know today is modern-day Canada. But those texts all came from Scandinavia, and before the runestone's discovery, there had never been any proof found on American soil to indicate a Viking presence. Still, the Scandinavian immigrant population was rising in America at this time. These immigrants felt that their history was intertwined with America's and that the connection was being ignored. Some upstart Scandinavians even set out to prove that a 14th century voyage was possible. 1893 saw the World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago, and one of the biggest exhibits was a celebration of the 400th anniversary of Columbus's discovery of America. Meanwhile, a replica of a 9th century Viking ship sailed from Norway to Chicago for the fair and docked right next to the replicas of the Nina, Pinta, and Santa Maria. The Viking ship's voyage disproved the previous notion that the Vikings wouldn't have been capable of sailing all the way to the New World. This, in turn, gave rise to a public desire to verify the Kensington runestone's authenticity. Professor George Kerm from Northwestern University agreed to examine the stone. Kerm was an expert in German linguistics and philology, which is the history of languages. Kerm compared the original transcription to the symbols on the stone itself. His ruling was swift. The message appeared to be written using modern Swedish grammar, meaning the stone would have been carved long after the 14th century. The abbreviation AVM, carved in Latin letters, stands for Ave Virgo Maria, Hail Mary. Now, 14th century Scandinavians were Roman Catholic, so the use of Latin wouldn't have been uncommon. But the stone was also inscribed with runes that seemed to translate to the English words of, dead, evil, 
mans, and from. Vikings in the 14th century didn't speak English, so the presence of these potentially English words would cast some doubt on the stone's authenticity. Kerm sent photographs of the stone to expert colleagues abroad and asked for a second opinion. In 1899, three professors from Christiania University in Oslo sent in their unanimous opinion. The stone was a forgery, likely written by a Swede with a feeble understanding of runic letters and English. Old Swedish of the 14th century had four cases retained from Old Norse. By the 15th century, late Old Swedish reduced the language to two cases. The older cases were conspicuously absent from the text on the runestone. In the inscription, the phrase Aptiel Safarth, which means journey of discovery, has no precedent in Scandinavian, Low German, or Low Frankish languages prior to the 16th century. Thus, it was impossible that Vikings from the 14th century had written it. It was concluded that the forger had likely repurposed Viking terminology from modern writings on the subject. It seemed as if the mystery was solved. The stone was a fake. Omen had dug up a forgery. The Kensington runestone was a hoax. Kerm sent the slab back to Omen in Minnesota. Omen accepted the ruling, and that seemed to be that, for at least a few years. In the summer of 1907, Omen received a visit from a Yalmar Holand. Holand was a fellow Scandinavian-American who was writing a book about the history of Norwegian settlements in America. He had heard about the stone and was determined to see it with his own eyes. Omen actually gave Holand the stone, figuring that it was useless. Holand couldn't believe his luck. He left Kensington with the 200-pound slab and an exciting new theory. Holand scoured Omen's home for any proof that the farmer could have forged the stone. When he found nothing, Holand began to believe that the stone was actually authentic. He would make it his life's mission to prove his theory to the world. Holand published De Norska Settlementers Historia, or History of the Norwegian Settlements, in 1908. He explicitly laid out his theory that the Kensington runestone was proof that Scandinavians had traveled to America before Columbus. Holand ignored the linguistic arguments about the validity of the carving and the fact that it could have easily been forged by Omen or someone else. Instead, he presented geological data on the weathering of the stone itself. The glacial scratches and the suspected age of the carving meant that the stone had to be at least 100 years old, if not older. Holand was a self-taught scholar and book salesman with limited experience in runology, geology, and archaeological study. It is entirely possible that he made these claims up to stir controversy and drive up book sales. In his own words, he was motivated by fierce pride for his Norwegian heritage to prove the stone's authenticity. Bragging rights and cultural identity played a big role in the quest to verify the stone. If the stone was real, then the Scandinavian population of America would have definitive proof that their new home had deep ties to their ancestral homeland. Holand's book had the intended effect of stirring up new interest in the runestone. In the early 1900s, the Museum Committee from the Minnesota Historical Society conducted a formal investigation into the stone's authenticity. In 1910, 
the committee published a 66-page report formally endorsing the runestone as genuine. Holand had gotten his wish. He seemingly proved the stone was real. But the report wasn't exactly on the up and up. The five historical society members who made up the museum committee sought the analysis of expert Scandinavian philologists, all of whom dismissed the stone as a hoax. Despite the rebuttal, the museum committee released their endorsement of the stone. None of the five men who signed off on the publication were familiar with philology or Scandinavian linguistics. Shockingly, the Historical Society archives in St. Paul reveal that Holand himself inspired and drove the report's publication. Dozens of letters show that the overzealous scholar wrote large parts of the report himself. Holand practically bullied the museum committee into declaring a verdict in support of the stone's authenticity. There's even a copy of the report's original manuscript in Holand's own handwriting. Holand's involvement with the runestone became even more suspect following the report. After the publication, he tried to sell the runestone to the Minnesota Historical Society for $5,000, almost $140,000 today. Perhaps tellingly, the Historical Society rejected his offer. And it didn't help the stone's credibility that in 1909, Omen, his son Edward, and neighbor Nils Flatten all signed sworn affidavits that gave conflicting versions of the discovery. During the museum committee's investigation, Flotten claimed the stone was discovered about 500 feet from his house, when the actual distance was closer to 500 yards. Omen said the runestone was unearthed in August of 1898, while other Kensington residents believed it to be November. Estimates of the diameter, and thus the age, of the poplar tree where the stone was found also differ greatly. The tree had been cut down after Omen discovered the stone, so investigators only had reports to verify its age. The tree was believed to be anywhere from 12 to 70 years old. A forger could have plausibly buried the stone beneath a young tree, waited a few years before it became entangled in the roots, and then made a sudden discovery. But 70 years earlier, there'd been no settlers in Kensington, meaning the stone was likely genuine and the tree had sprung up by pure coincidence. Furthermore, the affidavits were sworn to by a notary public who wasn't officially licensed until 16 months after they'd been given. This meant that Omen's statement wasn't technically verified, and thus, even if he'd lied, he had not committed a crime in doing so. Holand claimed that when he first met Omen, he didn't find any books that might link the farmer to a potential hoax. But the committee reported that Omen owned a copy of an 1840 Swedish grammar book containing a table of runes. The book was signed by its former owner, Sven Fogelblad, a Swedish schoolteacher who lived with the Omens before passing away in 1897, a year before the stone was discovered. The museum committee didn't deem the grammar book as sufficient enough to be a source of the inscription, but it was certainly fishy. Still, Holand was undeterred by the controversy. He took the stone on a European tour to gain endorsements from expert runologists. He was uniformly rejected. Archives show that the Minnesota Historical Society actually purchased the runestone from its original owner, Olaf Omen, in 1911, 
for $10. Holand would continue to contend that Omen gave him the stone. As World War I ramped up, interest in the runestone waned once again. The accounts of the runestone's discovery were suspicious at best, and experts in multiple fields had published articles discrediting the language as too close to modern Swedish. Holand had staked everything on the runestone and seemingly lost. The international academic community discredited him either as a hoax-defending hack or a knowing charlatan exploiting the stone for profit. But Holand didn't give up, and by the 1940s, the Kensington runestone would be on display at the Smithsonian Institute in Washington, D.C. as an authentic artifact from the Age of Exploration. Coming up, we'll discuss the Kensington runestone's rise to national recognition. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Now back to the story. Author and self-proclaimed Scandinavian history buff, Yalmer Holand, was at a low point in 1911. His attempts to prove the validity of the Kensington runestone had failed. Linguistics experts had publicly put forth that the writing on the stone wasn't authentic. His theories had been rejected and his reputation was in tatters. But Holand wouldn't give up. Motivated by some combination of Norwegian pride and an urge to stick it to his naysayers, Holand doubled down on his efforts to prove the Kensington runestone was genuine. He knew that the runestone would always have detractors, but if he managed to prove that the expedition described on the stone actually happened, then few would be able to doubt him. And so, Holand looked to the past, to 14th century Sweden. Holand found a 1354 letter from King Magnus Eriksson of Sweden and Norway appointing a law officer named Paul Knudsen to sail to Greenland in search of subjects who had lapsed from Christianity and subsequently disappeared. The expedition would have set sail in 1355 and returned around 1364. There are no official records from the voyage, and the fact that Europe was recovering from Black Plague during that time makes it seem unlikely that a voyage was commissioned. However, Scandinavian historians corroborate the Greenland colony's lapse from Christianity in the mid-14th century, at least giving precedent for the voyage to take place. Holland had enough to go on. The next step would be to try and trace the original route of Knudsen's expedition, what follows is Holand's estimate account of the journey. 
After spending a couple of winters in Greenland searching for the missing Christians, Knudsen and his men pushed forward to Vinland, i.e. North America. After spending three or four years searching the bays and islands of the Gulf of St. Lawrence, the Vikings eventually docked in the Hudson Bay. Abandoning their search for the Christians, the expedition decided instead to embrace the spirit of exploration spreading across Europe. The Vikings followed the Nelson River to explore the interior of the Virgin Continent, reaching Lake Winnipeg and the Red River before landing in modern-day Minnesota. Holand reasoned that fur traders had used this route to travel to Minnesota during the 17th century, so why couldn't have Knudsen and his men? If you remember, the runestone inscription states, quote, We have ten by the sea to look after our ships, 14 days' journey from the island, end quote. You probably don't need a map to realize Kensington is far more than a 14 days' journey by boat from the ocean. The mouth of the Nelson River is nearly 1,300 miles away. Holland argued that a day's journey was a medieval unit of measurement of approximately 75 miles. The math doesn't entirely line up there, but again, Holland was making approximations. Interestingly, Holland also deduced that the inscription on the runestone was chiseled by two people, not one. He could tell that some of the writing was written by a right-handed person, while the rest came from a left-handed person. Still, it all sounds a bit far-fetched. But strangely, Holland unearthed what seemed to be more evidence of a medieval expedition to the Midwest United States. Throughout the 1920s and 30s, amateur archaeologists from across the Midwest sent Holland artifacts that were suspected of having Viking origins. He received axes, swords, spearheads, and fire steel. None of these objects held up to expert scrutiny. For instance, a supposed Viking halberd turned out to be an old tobacco cutter, and one of the swords was revealed to belong to the Knights of Columbus Men's Club. But Holland also received several stones that had been recovered from Minnesota lakeshores. These stones had small holes chiseled in them that allowed a spike with an attached ring to be inserted so that a boat could be tied to the rock. This is a long-time technique used by Norwegian and Swedish fishermen for tying up boats next to steep fjords. Holland called these moor stones, and he believed they offered further proof of a Viking presence in the area. The holes had to be man-made, and since Holland could see no alternative for the hole's existence, the only remaining answer must be Vikings. Now, Holland may seem like an obsessive faux-academic who continually propagated a theory despite growing evidence to the contrary. But his tireless defense of the runestone's authenticity actually started to catch on in the 1930s. Holland published books, including The Kensington Stone in 1932 and Westward from Vinland in 1940, that built upon his theories and explored the possible route the Vikings may have taken across the American Midwest. In the early 1940s, esteemed Danish archaeologist Johannes Bronsted joined Holland on a three-month study of the Minnesota Moorstones. When the study was over, Bronsted reported that in his expert opinion, the Kensington runestone was authentic and the Moorstones proved that Vikings had settled in America before Columbus. 
Bronsted's support brought the runestone to new levels of fame. Bronsted's verification led other archaeologists to examine the stone. As the stone's credibility increased, so too did demand by those who wanted to see it for themselves. In 1948, over 30 years after he'd been written off as a hack, Yalmer Holand finally got the recognition he'd been seeking. The stone was officially requested by the Smithsonian Institute in Washington, D.C., and it was put on display for the public from 1948 to 1949. An official from the Smithsonian even told National Geographic that the rune stone was, quote, probably the most important archaeological object found in North America. The Commonwealth of Kensington opened a park in Alexandria, Minnesota, in recognition of the stone. The park, which still operates today, features an enormous replica of the rune stone that was unveiled at a public ceremony. The support from the Smithsonian led many Americans to accept the Kensington runestone as fact. But dissent still prevailed among some academics. In 1949, the Elbow Lake Herald reported that a runestone was discovered on a farm in Grant County, Minnesota, adjacent to the county where Kensington is located. Professor J.A. Holvik of Concordia College went out to examine the new stone. Holvik had been a longtime detractor of the Kensington runestone theory, and he quickly deduced that this new stone was a fraud. The farmer eventually admitted to the prank. He explained to Holvik that most Scandinavian immigrants had some working knowledge of the old alphabets, even those with little education. The farmer had converted Old Swedish to runes using an old textbook. This got Holvik thinking. If it was possible for this farmer to carve a runestone, couldn't Omen have carved the Kensington runestone? Holvik dug up the old files from the Historical Society's initial investigation into the stone from 1910. He found the letter that originally brought the Kensington runestone to public attention, J.P. Hedberg's 1899 transcription of the stone that appeared in the Svenska Amerikanska Posten. Holvik noticed discrepancies between Hedberg's transcription and the actual writing on the runestone, leading him to believe that either Hedberg knew more about runes than he originally let on, or the letter was actually a rough draft of the inscription the forgers used for the stone. Recall that Omen's textbook containing the table of runes was previously owned by the schoolteacher Sven Fogelblad, who lived with Omen before his death in 1897. Holvik theorized that Fogelblad helped write the inscription before he died, and Omen carried out the work and carved the stone. Omen had died in 1935, so in the fall of 1949, Holvik paid a visit to his daughter, Amanda, who showed the professor another of her father's old books, one the original investigation had overlooked. It was Carl Rosander's The Well-Informed Schoolmaster. Reading the textbook's discussion of runes, Holvik realized it was another book that could have been used to write the Kensington runestone's inscription. But just as Holvik's research was ramping up, he hit a tragic roadblock. Shortly after Holvik's initial visit to Omen's old home, Amanda hanged herself. Sadly, she wasn't the only one of Omen's nine children to meet that fate. 
One of her brothers had committed suicide in the same manner and location years earlier. Though there's no clear evidence linking their deaths with the Kensington runestone, the event shook Holvik and slowed his momentum. Rumors spread that Holvik had at one point been forbidden from the Omen's property. Now, no one knows the real story, but the implications seem to be that Holvik was accusing the family of forgery. In the early 1950s, Holvik shared his findings with Professor Eric Walgren, a scholar in Scandinavian languages and literature at UCLA. In 1956, Holland released a new book about the stone, Explorations in America Before Columbus, a veritable victory lap after his recent success. In 1958, Walgren fired back with his own book, The Kensington Runestone, The Mystery Solved. Walgren's book presented many of Holvik's theories about the forgery to a wider audience within the academic community. It ultimately built a strong but circumstantial case against Omen and his potential collaborators Sven Fogelblad and J.P. Hedberg. Walgren pointed to the text in Omen's library that could have helped with the inscription. He also noted Omen's reputation in the community as a practical joker with disdain for the educated. But neither Holvik nor Walgren was able to find the smoking gun. There was no hard evidence proving that Omen, Fogelblad, or Hedberg had conspired to create a forgery. Holvik was savaged by his critics in his home state of Minnesota and across the Midwest. By that point, Holland had become a hero to Scandinavian Americans. He was the scrappy historian who endured all manner of doubt and ridicule in order to prove that Scandinavians had played an important role in early American history. Meanwhile, Holvik, a fellow Norwegian-American, was viewed as a traitor to his state and heritage. Minnesotans wanted to believe in the Kensington Runestone, regardless of what the evidence said. Couldn't Holvik just leave well enough alone? Despite Walgren and Holvik's findings, Kensington Runestone believers wouldn't be convinced it was a hoax without surefire proof. However, Walgren's book did succeed in keeping the controversy in the public eye. By the mid-1950s, the Smithsonian Institute had walked back their support of the Kensington Runestone. The Institute officially endorsed the conclusions of Johannes Bronsted, who had reconsidered his observations of the Minnesota Moorstones back in the 1940s, publicly stating that the runestone left some question of deliberate fraud. But then, in 1960, a pair of Norwegian explorers discovered the remains of a Norse colony in Lance O' Meadows in Newfoundland, Canada, the first indisputable evidence of pre-Columbian European presence in North America. Carbon dating estimated that the colony was constructed between 990 and 1050 CE. Eight buildings were found, with enough living space for anywhere between 30 to 160 men and women. Holland's claims of Scandinavian presence in America were finally substantiated with actual, solid evidence. And if a thousand-year-old Norse colony could be found in Newfoundland, then a 700-year-old Norse runestone turning up in Minnesota was a lot more likely. In 1962, Holland published a final book, a pre-Columbian crusade to America, before passing away the following year at the age of 90. 
the historical impact of the Kensington runestone was more relevant than ever. Even before the Lance O. Meadows colony was discovered, most Americans started believing that Vikings were the first Europeans in America, largely thanks to Holand's lifelong effort. The Kensington runestone was exhibited at New York's World's Fair from 1964 to 1965. The 28-foot fiberglass Viking statue built to accompany it bore a shield that read, Alexandria, the birthplace of America. After the World's Fair, the Viking statue was shipped to Alexandria, becoming the town's second shrine to the stone after the memorial park. Big Ole, the statue's affectionate nickname, stands to this day. The actual runestone became the centerpiece of Alexandria's runestone museum, located across the street from Big Ole. The discovery of the Lance O'Meadow colony definitively proved that Vikings arrived at the American supercontinent before Columbus. But it did not prove the Kensington runestone was legitimate. Though the stone was accepted as truth among the general public, the academic community was mostly in doubt. They just didn't have proof that it was a forgery. But in the 1970s, shocking confessions from the runestone's discoverers finally gave them what they were looking for, hard evidence that the ancient relic may not be so ancient. We'll discuss the more recent history of the fight to prove or disprove the authenticity of the Kensington runestone after this. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now back to the story. In the 1960s, the Kensington runestone reached new heights of popularity after the discovery of a Norse settlement proved Vikings had reached America before Columbus. And yet, the stone still had detractors, including academic Theodore Bleegan. Bleegan published the Kensington runestone, New Light on an Old Riddle, in 1968. His analysis expanded on Walgren and Holvik's findings, but in the final paragraph, Bleegan teased that he knew of two tapes that would, quote, throw new light on the origin of the Kensington inscription as modern and local. Bleegan was referring to a set of 1967 tapes recording a conversation between Walter Gran, his sister Anna Josephine, and her son Walter. The elder Walter Gran was the son of John P. Gran, one of Olaf Omen's neighbors at the time of the Kensington Runestone's discovery. In 1973, a BBC documentary about the Runestone leaned heavily on rumors of the Gran tape to expose the stone as a hoax. In 1976, the Minnesota Historical Society finally printed transcripts of the tape in their magazine, Minnesota History, on the tape, Walter Gran was questioned by his nephew about the deathbed confession of his father John in the 1920s. John confided in his son that he'd helped Omen carve the stone. He explained that Omen's motivation was to bewilder the educated. 
The teacher, Sven Fogelblad, was the, quote, head man to lay out the inscription, end quote. Remember, runestone defenders believed Omen was too uneducated to make the carving, but with the help of Fogelblad and the textbooks with rune charts Omen was proven to have, this story isn't hard to swallow. Walter Grand described Omen and his father planting the slab beneath the poplar tree years before it was discovered, confirming a theory of Holvik's. The stone was thus found twice, once as a blank slab of rock, then a few years later after the inscription was adequately aged. Though Omen never admitted to Walter Grand that he carved the runestone, Grand mentions a conversation with one of the Omen children who dismissed the relic as only humbug. Grand recalled that his father was left-handed, which confirmed Holen's observation that the runestone was carved by two persons, one right-handed, one left-handed. Omen was right-handed. John Gran was a lefty. Finally, Grand dismissed the idea that Holland knew the truth. He described him finding the runestone used as a granary doorstep while Omen and his father had a big, quote, haw-haw in the back. <laughs> Kensington residents hotly debated the tape's validity. Walter Gran had a reputation for exaggeration, and it was difficult for him to provide a straight story in subsequent interviews. Some believed Bleegan himself put Gran up to recording the tape. Most notable was the fact that it took so many years for the tapes to actually be presented to the public. If Bleegan knew about the tapes in 1967, why didn't the public hear what was on them until 1976? Nevertheless, the damage was done. Public belief in the stone's authenticity began to decline once again. And in 1981, the runestone's reputation received another blow. Remember Holin's Moor Stones? Those unexplainable rocks with holes he'd found around Minnesota that supposedly supported the route he proposed from the Hudson Bay to Kensington? Well, someone explained them. A small crew from the Minnesota Historical Society had arrived in Douglas County to research Native American archaeological sites. During this trip, they took it upon themselves to investigate the Moorstones. It didn't take them long to find that something was off about Holin's statement regarding the stones. The crew found hundreds of drilled-in stones along the riverbed and near the site of Omen's farm. The Historical Society crew was lucky enough to learn the truth of the stones from a surviving neighbor of Omen's. The foundation of this old neighbor's barn was full of rocks with chiseled holes in them. He explained the holes were chiseled to insert dynamite and gunpowder. As a boy, he even sharpened chisels for Omen and his father. From the 1800s to the early 20th century, blasting rocks was a common land-clearing practice. Sometimes the holes blew up, sometimes they remained. Holand evidently wasn't familiar with the practice, since the answer to the Moorstone mystery was in plain sight the whole time. Without Holand, the Kensington runestones seemingly had no defender. Historians and academics chiseled away at various evidence, like Omen chiseled away at that blank slab back in the 1890s. Maybe. But just when it seemed like the Kensington runestone was all but buried, another champion emerged. 
In the 1980s and 90s, Richard Nielsen began to dismantle decades-old claims that the inscription language was too contemporary to be authentic. Nielsen, a self-taught runic scholar in the tradition of Yalmer Holand, spent many years combing through medieval manuscripts and inscriptions from Scandinavia, finding multiple uses of runes that scholars deemed anomalous. In 1951, the official runologist of the Danish Museum had identified a symbol in the inscription that was invented by a French philosopher in the 16th century. Nielsen, however, found the same admittedly rare symbol in the Codex Runicus, a Nordic text written in 1300. Nielsen argued that the use of obscure runes proved the stone must be authentic. How would a modern forger even be aware of them? Nielsen also identified that the inscription was written in the dialect used on the Swedish island of Gotland, not in the Halsinglands, the province from which Omen's family had emigrated. It was very unlikely he'd have written the inscription in an unfamiliar dialect. Nielsen's work inspired more voices to rise up in support of the stone. In 2000, the Runestone Museum commissioned geologist Scott Walter to date the Kensington Runestone using modern technology. Walter was an expert in forensic petrography, the microscopic study of concrete and rock. Though a Minnesota native, he had no prior knowledge of the Kensington Runestone when he took the project. When he investigated the stone, Walter found the white markings of roots on the stone that could have been caused by acidic chemical reaction with a ground fungus, something that never would have occurred had the stone only been buried under the poplar roots for a short time. Walter next compared the runestone inscription to tombstones found in colonial cemeteries in Maine. The state's climate and mineralogy are similar to Minnesota's, and both the Kensington runestone and the tombstones contain a black mica mineral called biotite. Carving into a stone exposes the biotite. Using a chip sample from a 200-year-old tombstone, one of the oldest in the country, Walter found that time was only just beginning to erode the exposed biotite on the inscription. On the Kensington runestone, the biotite mineral on the inscription had already disappeared meaning the Kensington runestone must be greater than 200 years old. Walter observed that the Kensington runestone couldn't have been carved later than the late 1600s. In that era, Native Americans and fur traders were the only people in present-day Minnesota, and of course, they had no knowledge of Norse runes. Therefore, the date on the stone must be considered accurate. 1362. In late 2000, Walter presented his findings at the Midwest and Plains Archaeological Conference. Though fellow geologists agreed with his research, archaeologists dismissed it, arguing that dating inscriptions by examining the weathering can never be an exact science. Walter went on to co-write a book with Nielsen about their findings. The Kensington Runestone, Compelling New Evidence, presents Walter's geological data and Nielsen's theory that the 14th century expedition originated in Gotland. The book contains a chronology of the island's medieval history with photos of its religious architecture and monuments, 
many related to the Cistercian monastic order, with which the authors suggest the carvers of the stone may have been linked. The Cistercian monks were closely linked to the Teutonic Knights. You might know them better as the Knights Templar, a legendary order of warriors known for defending the Holy Land during the Crusades. Walter would later produce Holy Grail in America, a History Channel documentary on the Kensington Runestone that speculated on some pretty out-there ideas. If the Kensington Runestone is real, those who left it must have undertaken one of the greatest journeys in human history. They would have traveled more than a thousand miles downriver into a completely uncharted continent, braving unrelenting wilderness and unfamiliar animals. In the 14th century, who could have been more capable of such a miraculous feat than the Knights Templar? Knights Templar, Vikings, Paul Knudsen. Is it really possible that a mysterious group of explorers traveled from Scandinavia to Minnesota in the 14th century, 130 years before Columbus set foot in the Bahamas? Next week, we'll dive deeper into discussing the expedition that could have left behind the Kensington Runestone. What happened to the, quote, 10 men red with blood and dead? What evil did they need saving from? And what were they really looking for all the way in Minnesota? Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. We'll be back Thursday with part two of the Kensington Runestone. You can find more episodes of Unexplained Mysteries, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast, and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. See you next Thursday. And remember, never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Andy Waits, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode was written by D.F.W. Buckingham and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner.